Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This episode, Harassment and Abuse in Science. This series has been dedicated to discussing the freedom and safety of scientists, threats that come from both within and outside of science. In our previous episode, we discussed harassment and bullying within research, but as well as academic harassment, scientists and science around the world are affected by sexual harassment and assault, the topic of today's podcast. Sexual misconduct is not exclusive to one particular institution or even to science itself. But today, as a particular case study, we're looking at one account that made headlines when it was first reported, and investigating what the institution has done in the year and a half since to address the situation. Late in 2021, the science world was rocked by news of sexual harassment at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, also known as STRI. The story, which Nature covered in early 2022, was first reported by BuzzFeed in an article titled The Smithsonian's Me Too Movement, featuring the accounts of 16 women. One of those women, Sarah Batterman, has agreed to share her account with us. Sarah is an ecosystem ecologist and biogeochemist based at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, New York, and the University of Leeds, UK. She's also still connected to STRI as a research associate. Sarah started out by explaining how she first came to work at the Institute. I began working at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute since uh, the beginning of my PhD in 2008 and did most of my PhD research there. And I've continued working there ever since. The Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute is the premier um, research station in the tropics and probably a vast majority of people who work in tropical forests from all over the world have done research there at some time or work with someone who's done research there at some time. So to be able to work there is can really make your career and really accelerate your career as an early career scientist. And can you explain what it was actually like to start out working at the research institute? It was exciting. I got to go and immediately be immersed in this 
intellectual environment that was incredibly stimulating. I got to meet some of the scientists whose papers I've been reading, and I got to start doing research that has really launched me in my career and um, helped me get to where I am today. But I understand that some of your experiences at the Institute were less positive. Yes. So um, definitely there's been a lot of negative things that have happened to me that have also impacted my career, which mainly involve um, sexual harassment and sexual assault. When I was, well, so a, a couple of years into my PhD, I was sexually harassed and ultimately sexually assaulted by a collaborator who was a staff scientist at STRI, um, Dr. Ben Turner. And that has carried with me for over a decade and made pretty serious consequences for my productivity, for my mental health, for my personal life. Um, that's, yeah, it's been, it's been really challenging. Would you be able to explain how it affected you maybe at the time that this took place? So this was in 2011, and I, I was at an academic conference in Iceland. It was pretty small, and Dr. Turner, um, who I had started working at his lab in Panama, but he suddenly at this conference turned his attention on me and began pursuing me and taking a lot of interest in me, wanting to talk about my ideas. And this carried on back to Panama, where I later went that year um, to do research. And um, he began showing me all this unwanted sexual attention that I felt super uncomfortable with. Ultimately, he manipulated me into spending time with him and doing things with him that I was very uncomfortable with by dangling opportunities over me. And so I felt in such a vulnerable place at that time in my career because I, you know, when you're a PhD student, the next step is so anxiety provoking. You know, what postdoc are you going to get? Are you going to get a postdoc? And so, you know, knowing that I had someone at STRI who re seemed to really like my research and was going to be that advocate for me when the decisions were made to, you know, about who would get the fellowships, that was huge. But then, you know, the negative side with that was that then I felt like I had to go along with the things that he wanted to do that were couched as professional things, you know, oh, let's go on this trip to Arizona to this other conference and... Um, we'll take uh, several days to, to tour around Arizona and we'll do research during the time. You'll get a publication out of it. And we'll also get to talk about that postdoc fellowship, things like that, which, you know, is like super inappropriate for a PhD student to be going on a trip around Arizona with a, a STRI staff scientist. But I felt like I needed to because he was saying like, oh, come do these things and, and I will support your fellowship application. You'll, you'll get a publication out of this. So I was just in a really vulnerable place where, you know, my career felt like it was on the line. And this powerful person at the Smithsonian who was a gatekeeper to resources at the Smithsonian was manipulating what I did by really, you know, holding that power over me. It was incredibly difficult. I felt 
very just torn up about what was happening. I felt so uncomfortable and it ended after I was, I went to a conference, I went to AGU, the American Geophysical Union Conference in San Francisco and Dr. Turner was also there and wanted me to go out drinking with him. And on the last night of the conference, we were out at a bar with another scientist and she had to go somewhere else. So after about eight o'clock, she left and she she noticed like that I was just so drunk. But she thought that Dr. Turner and I were friends and that, you know, everything would be fine. And I don't even remember her leaving. But the next thing I knew was early the next morning, I was in Dr. Turner's bed and I realized that um, I had been sexually assaulted and I had zero memory of it. That was the that was the end. I at that point, I just it felt awful. I was so confused and so um, just didn't know how, you know, that could have happened to me. It took me ten years, almost ten years, to even fully comprehend that I had been assaulted. For me, as a result of that, it meant that working on projects in Panama were incredibly difficult. And I, and I didn't understand that. Like, I, I didn't know why, like, it was so hard to get myself to work on research from Panama, which I beat myself up about, you know, like, oh, you're procrastinating on this thing, on this, this project. And what I've realized now is, oh, I was procrastinating because that was my brain protecting myself from those memories of being, like, so incredibly violated. It was compounded by the fact that I had to continue um, collaborating with Dr. Turner after the assault happened. The way that things work at Stry, you, you need these gatekeepers to be involved in your research in order to have access to all the resources, resources at the Institute. So I had to continue working with him, which ultimately led to him retaliating against me, you know, ending things with him by um, trying to take over some of my projects, withholding data from me, just being like a pretty difficult collaborator. It was almost 10 years of a lot of pain after what happened, which made a lot of my research really difficult. I estimate that I lost three of the 10 years in productivity because of what happened to me. And that, you know, that's a lot. That, like, is a huge impact on a career. I understand that in 2020, you made the decision to file a formal complaint. How did you decide to make this step? I didn't seek to address what had happened to me for almost a decade. My, you know, my, the trauma, I didn't fully accept what had happened to me. And I also thought that I was the only person that this had happened to. But... Everything changed in January 2020 when I was approached by another female scientist who works at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, and she said to me, hey, I've been sexually harassed by Dr. Ben Turner. When I told him to stop, he started retaliating against me and trying to hold up my research, withholding data. And I heard that he's been really difficult towards you. And I was just completely floored because everything that she told me sounded exactly like what he had done to me. And suddenly 
people just started coming out of the woodwork who had been sexually harassed by him. And the pattern was the same over and over and over and over again. It helped me to realize like what had fully what had happened to me and just it was totally wrong. And so once I knew that other people were being affected by him, other early career women, I just couldn't let that continue. And so that's when I decided to make a formal complaint to Stry. Was there any nervousness or hesitation before making this complaint? I was terrified. I was terrified that Stry would not take the complaint seriously. And I was terrified that it would negatively affect my career. And we actually had data that they wouldn't take the complaint seriously. So a couple of women had made some informal complaints about Dr. Turner a couple of years earlier to the um, former director of STRI. And basically, the direct, former director gave Dr. Turner a slap on the wrist and told him, hey, like, you know, I hear you beha- behave badly. You can't do that anymore. You know, what faith did we have that Stry was going to take our, our complaint seriously? And can you explain what the response you received from Stry was actually like? They ended up taking it very seriously. So they hired an external investigator and they did what appeared to be a very thorough investigation. And ultimately, we know that Dr. Turner no longer works at Stry. But the process itself of reporting and then the outcome had some hiccups that were really frustrating and anxiety producing. And they didn't actually tell us what the outcome was. All they could tell us was that our complaint had been taken very seriously and that Dr. Turner no longer worked at Stry, but like we don't know what that meant. Like was that was he fired? Did he resign? You know, did he get a severance package? Like and that has implications for, you know, the, the, his record as an employee of the institute and ability to go on and 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 move to another institution and potentially continue doing the same thing to other women. Can you explain then the further action that you ended up taking in 2021? I felt like I needed to go public with what had happened to me. And and another reason for going public was that I began to talk to more and more women who had worked at STRI, most as visiting researchers. And almost all, like over 75% of the women that I talked to, I spoke to over 30 women, and over 75% of them had had experiences of sexual harassment or sexual assault at STRI. And it wasn't just Dr. Turner. It was pervasive because STRI just seemed to be trying to sweep the Dr. Turner issues under the rug and not really do anything else, um, I felt like the only way to actually get action would be to go public with my story and and with the story of several other women who also had negative experiences at STRI. So I understand that you went public via a piece in BuzzFeed. What was the response that you received to this piece? Overwhelmingly positive. I just couldn't believe the outpouring of support that I received from the scientific community, from people at STRI. I received so many messages from people who had had experiences of sexual assault or sexual harassment in science who just said, like, thank you, this has opened something that is just so pervasive and so um, harmful, and what you did was really important. 
that was <laughs> gratifying because I was mostly terrified of haters and of people threatening and things like that. But I didn't actually receive any negative feedback. Has reporting both to the Smithsonian and then more publicly had an emotional or a, a career cost for you? Yes. I basically spent two years um, reporting the sexual harassment to Stry and then going public um, with the BuzzFeed story. I felt like I was able to get the minimal essential research done during that time, I, but I, I felt like I wasn't able to be nearly as productive as I would have been if I wasn't spending two-thirds of my week on the phone with other women and lawyers and reporters and attorney, you know, the investigator talking about sexual harassment. But I felt at the time, and I, I still feel now, that it was really important to do. And I, I wouldn't say that I'm fully past it, but I am way past where I was emotionally with the trauma in 2020. You are still in academia, but was there ever a risk as far as you perceive it that all these events would end up forcing you out of your discipline? Yes, that was that was my fear in reporting. And, and also all the years before, you know, when I didn't want anyone to find out what had happened. Um, I was scared that if my other collaborators found out what happened, that they wouldn't want to work with me anymore. So many women are no longer in science because of the sexual harassment and sexual assault that they experience in science. There were, you know, I think this gatekeeper. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The model of power is really empowering for harassers and so harmful for their targets. So early career scientists are dependent on later career scientists for access to resources, for access to funding, for access for their letters of recommendation, and it creates a power dynamic that's so easily abused. There's, you know, women who who I spoke to who are no longer in science in part because of the sexual harassment that they experienced. How unusual do you think that these experiences with STRI are compared to experiences of women in academia as a whole? This is the thing. It's not just STRI. This is a pervasive issue in academia that hurts women everywhere. There was a 2014 survey of field experiences of people in science, which found that 64% of early career scientists who did remote field work experienced sexual harassment, and 20% of them survived sexual assault. I mean, that's huge. That's, that's terrifying for all these um, young scientists who are going to the field to launch their careers. You know, we wonder why women drop out of the pipeline in science, um, why we don't have women represented, especially at, you know, later career stages. And it's like all this crap that we have to deal with. It's a, it's a major cost um, emotionally, professionally. It's something that we need to change. 
What's your hope then for how institutions can change to better respond to, or perhaps more importantly, to better prevent harassment and assault in the future? We need fundamental policy change to make science a safe place for women. So one of the things we need to do is address this gatekeeper model. We need to distribute the power so it's not just concentrated in one person. We also need to make sure we have safety standards and protocols for people who are traveling to research sites and also to conferences. It was something that, you know, was not talked about when I was a PhD student, safety. We don't talk about safety in the field. We don't talk about, like, how it's inappropriate for a professor or a staff scientist to pursue a a PhD student. We don't talk about what do you do if you feel unsafe in the field? What do you do if you're sexually assaulted? We also need to streamline reporting systems and making it clear and easy for people to um, report harassment and assault. And also make sure that people know that if they do report, that they will be taken seriously and support them. And the last thing that I think is really important is to adopt ethical standards so that perpetrators can't just move on to like new pastures and continue to violate community norms. Um, I think it's something that we need to think about as a science community. That was Sarah Batterman. Nature has also contacted Ben Turner twice, but had not received a reply by the time this podcast went live. Given the structural issues that Sarah mentioned, we wanted to see what has changed at Stry since the story broke. The Institute's new director, Josh Tewksbury, started in July 2021, just five months before the BuzzFeed article was published. And when we spoke with Josh, he told us... It's important to note that none of the people that were um, mentioned in the BuzzFeed article as potential perpetrators are a part of the institution anymore. But what changes has Josh put in place to respond to future accusations, as well as safeguard scientists from sexual harassment and assault in the first place? And what were Josh's experiences taking on this role at this pivotal time? After all, when he applied for the role, the events weren't yet public, and so he was unaware of what had been taking place at Stry. And so my first knowledge of um, the situation um, happened when I was read in after I had accepted the, the position. What did it feel like for you to be taking on the role at this time with all of this upheaval taking place within the institution? When I was read in to the events and I recognized the gravity and the seriousness of uh, the situation for the institution and, and most importantly for the individuals involved, for the survivors, I recognized that the leadership that I was going to have to provide would be a fairly different character than I had signed up for. That, and yet, that's the job, is to lead the institution from where it is um, to the place where you think it needs to be. And so um, it was pretty clear within a month after joining that the first 18 months or maybe significantly longer of my tenure as director would be devoted to and focused on these issues. Do you have a sense of why so many of these issues had gone unchecked for so long at Stry? These issues um, tend to stick in um, unfortunate places unless you have fairly clear um, transparency and, account and accountability mechanisms in place. 
I think these issues are, you know, are not unique to Stry. They're not even unique to field organizations, but we do see them crop up pretty regularly when you combine a lot of, you know, um, informal scientific instruction, um, a lot of engagement where you have, you know, power dynamics that create inequalities. As you've alluded to, a lot of these issues aren't unique to Stry. At the same time, do you think there were particular failings taking place at the Institute? At the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, where so much of our work is in the field and where so much of it depends critically on mentor-mentee relationships, we did not have in place the systems of accountability and transparency that are required to support our community. So those were failings, and I think we have addressed those over the past, you know, two years. Can you really spell out then what kind of things you've been looking to change and put in place which wasn't there before? First of all, like we implemented and really strengthened a system called SI Civil, which was based on the National Institute of Health system for anti-harassment, um, in which um, there is never a time in which a report that comes in sits on someone's desk without a professional examining it. And so that if I receive any complaints, it can't sit on my desk. I immediately talk to them. In addition, like transparency is all about multiple lines of communication and making sure we meet people where they are, right? So some people want to talk in a completely confidential manner. We made sure that there's 24-7 capacity for people to talk in English or Spanish that allow confidential reporting, you know, and, and really a focus on culture and systems change. So training, bystander training, training in um, safe space training, um, and, and learning how to listen effectively for signs that things aren't going well between team members. And then I guess the other part of it is just ensuring that our policies are super rock solid, right? So that we always, we have clean, clear policies on where people can stay and where they can't. We have clean, clear policies on how we protect individuals within our um, institution, how we support them. In all, it is a system that needed significant strengthening to support the community. And it wasn't in place five years ago. It wasn't even in place two to three years ago. It's now in place. You know, the other thing is, is that we have been working with all the people that came forward for the BuzzFeed article. We have been talking with most of them, everyone who's willing to talk, and engaging them in the process of how do we make Stry a more safe place, supporting them to be a part of the change themselves within the institution. And we've been just overwhelmed and, and really thankful uh, with the degree to which those individuals have, have been willing to engage. And are you actually seeing results from these kinds of changes? Could you give any examples of how these shifts have actually led to different outcomes over the last months or maybe couple of years? Part of this process was we also changed a lot of senior leadership. We had to. You know, our new HR lead is phenomenal and she's exceptionally well trusted in the community. And that was a change. Um, we had other key positions in leadership that we had to change because of because of just their, their relationship to the old system and the lack of trust that had developed between leadership and the community. And we, we desperately needed to reestablish that trust. I came in with the advantage of not being associated with the behaviors that we were really trying to combat. That plus the BuzzFeed article gave me a remit for doing fairly large scale change because no one could say that the old system was working. Doing that work was the priority and the results have been at first, yeah, a lot more people coming forward, and that's great. But they weren't being brought forward previously because people didn't have trust in leadership to take their issues seriously. So once you establish that trust, you then have to you, you then have to double down on engaging each one of those issues and resolving them rapidly, transparently, and efficiently. And I think that trust is a lot further along 
today than it was two years ago. But I have no illusion that we're done. One of the key concerns around the handling of these issues is that when an alleged perpetrator does leave their post following an investigation, it's often not shared in the institutions what the circumstances of them leaving are, or indeed if they've stepped down or been fired. The concern is that this could enable an individual to continue collaborations or continue on to another institution. Is this specific concern being addressed at STRI? It's a huge issue, um, and it's a systems failure. It's very hard for an individual institution to tackle all of it, but we definitely have taken steps at STRI and at Smithsonian to confront these issues. And so let me just give you a, a few examples of sort of the, the challenge that we face in this area. Um, you know, we're, we're not conducting um, a criminal investigation when we make a decision to that someone should be removed from their position or should no longer work at the Smithsonian. We're not, you know, in the business of saying someone is innocent or guilty. That's for a criminal case, right? If there's no criminal case involved, then, you know, when we decide to terminate uh, a contract with an employee for whatever reason, as in many institutions, it is always easier for an employee to quit than it is for them to be fired. This puts the organization in a challenging position, right? Because we no longer, um, we can't, you know, remove someone as fast as they can leave on their own accord. The other challenge we face is, of course, we are not in the position of sort of making a blanket public statement. In fact, legally, we can't around those issues, particularly if someone quits. That said, what we can do and what we have done in the past is say, as an institution, we are no longer associating with this individual. If you have concerns or you want further details about how that will affect your relationship with that individual, I am absolutely available to work through those on an individual basis with everyone. The central piece of your question, an institution can't solve the problem, given our current laws and regulations, of a perpetrator going on to continue to cause damage in a new institution without support from institutions outside of its walls. We can't out people for bad behavior publicly. And, and we can't do that for very for reasonable reasons. And yet there is nothing worse from the standpoint of a survivor to see the person that perpetrated harm on them go on to get a job in another institution and continue to perpetrate harm on another set of victims. And we have to make sure that doesn't happen. It's up to institutions to think creatively together about how we support each other to ensure that that doesn't take place. And it's up to directors in my position and other directors around the world to ensure individually we're doing everything in our power within the rules and laws we're given to ensure the safety of individuals within our institutions and far beyond them as well, to stop that from happening. You've touched on the advantages you had coming into the institution at this critical time with a clean slate. On, on the flip side of that, did changing director at this moment allow anyone to effectively avoid being held responsible for failings at the institution? It's a great question. And the answer is, um, it's hard to say. There's no point in sort of running around talking about who was to blame for, you know, when we're talking about people who are no longer there. And, you know, who's responsible for those systems failures? My job is to make sure we clean them up and to make sure they never happen again. But it's not productive to go around and pointing fingers at saying, you know, this person got away. What are your personal plans and maybe even your personal hopes for how Stry can continue to do better in the future and ensure the safety of the scientists who work there? Being a scientist is about, it's about being a leader. Um, and there's so many people that look up to science and to scientists. 
and the damage that can be done to an individual because of poor leadership or or uh, intentional harm, they're lifelong, and they 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 ruin not only individuals' c- careers but they ruin the, the pro- process of science. So we have an obligation to ensure that doesn't happen. And as an institution, I think we have reached a space where we're committed to that obligation. You know, you it takes years to build trust and it takes moments to break it. And so we're on that trajectory of years. And I think for me, I'm committed to ensuring that this institution becomes the best version of itself that supports people from all walks of life and that people come to Stry because it is a model of how to do intense, cutting edge tropical field research in groups, in teams, um, safely, effectively, in a just, equitable and inclusive environment. That was Josh Tewksbury. This is the last episode of this eight-part podcast series looking at freedom, safety, and responsibility in science. A huge thank you to all those who shared their stories with us, whether those experiences have been shaped by economic collapse, persecuted identity, or by conflict. We hope we'll have a chance to return to some of these stories in future episodes. We also have new series to come in 2023, including a celebration of team science focusing on the many non-research roles who support the scientific enterprise. We'll also be looking at art and science collaborations and how to get them right. But before I sign off, I wanted to leave you with a thought from climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe of Texas Tech University about the importance of freedom and safety in research. Traditionally in scientific culture, we are socialized to be the brain in the jar, I feel like. But what I'm convinced of increasingly is, of course, we want, you know, science has to be objective. You have to be able to get the same results no matter who you are, no matter where you do it. That's the essence of science. But when we bring our whole self to our science, when we bring who we are, what we care about, what we're passionate about, our identity, our heart, that's when we really connect over what matters. And so whoever we are, wherever we're from, I, I see today scientists bringing their whole selves to the table in ways that we were not able to or we were not encouraged to before. And that gives me so much hope because when we put not only our heads, but our hearts and our souls and our hands into this, I really truly feel like that's where our science can change the world. That's it for this series. Until next time... I'm Adam Levy. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.